Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter uh, 5, and it's the first 11 verses. Let me get us there. Chapter 5 of Luke, 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they were about to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men alive. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So probably the most dramatic, exciting experience I have ever been a part of is the birth of my children. I, I, uh, I'm of the generation that is in the room uh, when the, the baby is born, and uh, it's quite a shocking, just trembly moment when that baby is out of mom and cries that very first time, it's the most beautiful cry. I mean, I, I, I just immediately became dad in all of my understanding when I heard that cry. And so what happens is the, the baby goes from mom to doctor to nurse, and the nurse takes the baby over and, and uh, places the, the baby on this little table, and the baby is squirming and very upset and crying. I mean, their life has been dramatically uh, affected. They were very comfortable, and now they are not. But this nurse goes through immediately a routine to, to check to make sure that the baby is okay. And it goes by a name. It goes by the name of Apgar. A baby, every baby goes through Apgar, which is a scoring by the nurse of the baby's appearance, of whether the baby has a pulse, 
uh, of the baby's uh, grimace or their face. I think it, they chose grimace, although they're all very um, angry looking. Uh, <laughs> the second A is activity, and then finally, respiration. And so the task of the nurse is to make sure that this baby is healthy, alive, and thriving by scoring these five different categories, appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, and respiration. If these uh, qualities are, are not uh, uh, very evident, then intervention must come immediately. And if these uh, 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 components aren't there, then this baby is not going to thrive. And so as we, as we look at that moment of birth, of, of, of evaluating whether you're alive and thriving based on APGAR, I want us to think about our spiritual life and recognize that when, when the gospel says you are born again, the gospel announces that being a disciple of Christ is to be born. How do we evaluate whether we are born in the gospel? Whether we are truly alive? Whether we are thriving? Well, there needs to be something of a spiritual apgar to evaluate whether all of these vital signs are clear. And as we look at this passage today, it, it, I think we will see that uh, the, 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 the Word of God lays out for us four vital signs to make us aware of whether or not we have been truly born into Christ, whether we are truly a disciple of Christ, whether we have, in the, in the language of the text, been caught by Christ. Being able to be certain of these vital signs and to see them thriving in our life is as essential for our spiritual birth as the physical APGAR test is of our physical birth. And so as we go through these, every single one of us has a vested interest. Do I show life and do I show myself thriving in these vital signs of being born again? As we've, to put in context our, our series, uh, which is called Follow Me, we are taking a, a, a long uh, a dive through the Gospels to study what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the, the, the framework that we are using to understand what discipleship is, is to follow alongside the, the first disciple, the Apostle Peter, and see in his stories what we are to see for ourselves as we become disciples. So last week, we had the very introduction of Jesus to Peter in John chapter 1, where we saw in, in that uh, encounter that our Lord knows his disciples personally. That to be a disciple of Jesus means that you are one who Jesus knows savingly, directly, fully, and authoritatively. Now this week, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to um, make sense of the chronology of the different Gospels as we put them side by side. But it, it seems evident that that passage that we looked at with Peter and Jesus in John chapter 1 is quite a bit earlier than this encounter with Peter in Luke chapter 5. And by the way, Peter also goes by the name Simon, and so I will use both uh, more or less interchangeably. 
But about a year of ministry with, with Jesus has happened uh, that is recorded in the, the Gospel of John before this dramatic calling of, of uh, Simon at the Sea of Galilee. For some of us, that might be a surprise. If you're used to the stories of, of Peter's calling uh, being the very first time Jesus, Jesus knew, uh, talked to Peter, the first time Peter saw Jesus, uh, like we see in Luke chapter 5 or Mark chapter 1, you know, it's, it's, it's a shock because in like 20 seconds, Peter does an entire life change and, and follows Jesus. But when we harmonize the, the Gospels, it, it's, it's more apparent that Peter knew Jesus at the time that he is called here dramatically at the Sea of Galilee to follow him as a full-time um, uh, minister. Um, and so there is, I think, for me, it helps to understand that there is some history that Peter has with Jesus when this encounter happens. And it makes us able to see uh, some of how it comes about. At this encounter with Peter in Luke chapter 5, we are seeing Jesus take those words he gave to Peter in John chapter 1 that you will be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock, and begins to form Peter towards that promise, towards that end. So today we are going to see Peter, a disciple, being one who is caught by Jesus. He is caught by Jesus. This is the idea of, of him being a disciple, him coming into the life of Jesus in, in a full sense. So the question for us as we go through this passage, as we want to relate it to our life, is what does it mean to be caught by Jesus? What does it mean to be Christ's, to be uh, uh, owned by him? And we're going to see in this passage four vital signs that as we think about this in the, in the aspect of, of uh, an APGAR test, are we alive as we see these vital signs? Are we thriving? We are going to see that, that, that to be caught by Christ means first we profess his lordship. Second, we confess our sinfulness. Third, we receive his assurance. And finally, we join his mission. That is the APGAR of being a disciple of Christ. Let us take a look at each of these. We profess his lordship. So we encountered, uh, uh, this, this whole encounter happens at uh, the uh, Lake of Gennesaret, is what Luke calls it. Uh, that's just another title for the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of a local title for the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is this uh, major uh, body of water that is uh, in north, uh, north Israel. It's about 12 and a half miles long by 7 miles wide. It's 160 feet deep in some places. And so Jesus is doing his ministry up in the area of Galilee, which, which the Sea of Galilee is its primary feature. And we see him going through teaching. And it's important that we recognize that Luke says that what Jesus is teaching, what, what is coming out of Jesus' mouth, is the word of God. Jesus was giving the people the word of God. And we have this crowd, as we see many times in the Gospels, coming and listening to Jesus. And they are such a, a, a thick crowd that they are pressing in on Jesus. 
seeking to hear the word of God. And such a, a, a crush was this crowd that Jesus comes up to these two boats on the side of the Sea of Galilee and, and, and seeks to take one of them out into the lake so that he can teach from there without being overwhelmed by the crowd. We've, we know the crowd. A couple of weeks ago, uh, three, four weeks ago, we talked about the difference between just being a member of the crowd that follows Jesus and being a, a disciple of Jesus. Well, we talked about a crowd not being a, a fully a disciple of Jesus because it, it, can, it, committed, it is committed to its freedom first, to come as you uh, uh, desire, stay as long as you want sort of relationship with Jesus. So what we see in this passage as we talk about that idea of Apgar is what really distinguishes someone from being just a part of the crowd to being a disciple. And it's very important because uh, Simon shows us the way of discipleship. Now, one of these two boats is Simon's. We meet Simon namelessly here uh, as just one of these fishermen who has spent the night fishing and is here now cleaning his nets. So Simon is a fisherman. That's his, that's his profession. He's pretty established at it. I mean, he's got his, he's got his own boats, uh, or got at least his own boat. Uh, he's probably been doing this for a while. There's good reason to believe Peter is not a spring chicken when it comes to a disciple. He's, he's uh, already married at this point. And so he's probably been working this trade, which was probably his dad's trade, for years perhaps a, a couple decades, if you take it back to his young childhood. Being a fisherman, he is, it's his profession, and he is sustaining himself. Uh, fishing in the Sea of Galilee was a, a good job. Uh, you could take care of your own family and make enough money uh, pretty, pretty easily. It was a, it was a, a robust fishing uh, lake. And it seems that Peter also enjoys fishing. Uh, he's got a little Louisiana blood in him. He likes to go and fish. And one of the key uh, uh, hints at this is that after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection in John chapter 21, when the disciples are kind of sitting around with, well, what are we going to do? Peter says, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go fishing. And so uh, Peter ends up uh, going fishing as he is waiting to, to, to make sense of what's next. Now, it's no accident that Jesus picks Simon's boat. He says to Simon, I want you to take me out. Nothing Jesus does is an accident. And so after Jesus has taught these people the word of God, which Luke does not tell us uh, what Jesus says um, in, these, in this uh, passage, the focus is on Peter, we come to verse 4. And I want to reread verse 4 and verse 5. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. This is a, a fascinating conversation. Jesus uh, says to Peter, he wants you to go out deeper into the, into the lake. He wants you to let down your nets for a catch. And, and Peter responds... Master, we toiled all night in these waters here, and we didn't catch anything. 
who caught nothing. That's an interesting piece of information for Peter to share to the Lord. Correct? Why does he share that? I mean, you, you can read Scripture and you can put tone on the words and, and uh, subtext in the words. And sometimes uh, you, you can go way astray. But there is something about Peter here letting, his, letting Jesus know this really isn't uh, the best idea that suggests Peter's not 100% on board with this idea, right? He's, a, he's, he's gently pushing back. Like, let's reconsider. And there's some good reasons that Peter has to ask Jesus to reconsider. First of all, he's been fishing these waters uh, all night long. The ideal time to fish. And he caught nothing. As an experienced fisherman, he can say pretty confidently, it's just not good fishing time. Also, he knows that the nets that he uses are very visible nets. They're not designed for daytime fishing. And so to use them in the day is just to give the fish a a clear sign of something to swim around. The whole way the nets work is nighttime fishing. And so they don't have the right equipment. You're, you're asking me to fish in a, in, a, in a time when the fish don't bite. You're asking me to fish at a time and with uh, equipment that the fish aren't going to respond to. And, of course, Peter knows a thing or two. I mean, Jesus, you're a teacher. You've given yourself to the Word of God. But I've given myself to fishing. And here's where I have some expertise. Okay? So you can see why Peter might, might want to put up a little bit of a, a resistance to this. And yet, we see Peter showing us a, a very important aspect of discipleship. Because even though he voices this concern, his answer is still, Master, at your word, I will let down the nets. He calls Jesus master. He says this piece of consideration, but he defaults back to, at your word, I will let down the nets. Which is to say, even though personally I think differently, you're master. And if your word says let down the nets, I let down the nets. I think that is a huge demonstration of what it means to profess him as Lord, as Master. Why does Peter do this? He has all the reasons in the world to to know better than to waste his time getting his nets dirty again for an expedition that's going to come back with zero. Why does he go ahead and do this? Because Jesus' word rules him. So when we see in this passage, we see that to profess Jesus as Lord must mean we obey him. A profession of lordship requires obedience. And obedience is not the same thing as doing what Jesus says for us to do because we agree with him. Obedience is 
is, in, is, is coming from submission. I don't think you have a good idea. I think to follow your word right here is borderline foolish. It doesn't make sense to me. Yet, I submit myself because you are master to your word, and I obey. That is what professing his lordship means. The word master is not so long as we're on the same page. Master means even when I don't see it the way you see it, I align myself with obedience to what you've told me to do. Which is to say that professing lordship really reveals itself when the word of God says something to you that you're personally in conflict with. Am I going to accept the testimony, the verdict of Scripture, on the sinful parts of my life? Or am I going to just kind of say, well, that's an area we disagree on right now. Maybe, maybe, maybe he'll eventually come to the point of recognizing, I know a thing or two. These are important recognitions that when conflict comes up between our will and God's will, we really reveal whether our profession of his lordship is true based on the fact that we respond with obedience, with submission. Jesus wants us to know that this is a true profession. The profession of just calling Jesus Lord is not what Jesus is looking for. He is looking for a profession of lordship that works itself out in obedience because Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven you see how Jesus recognizes the profession of lordship is shown through obedience. And if we profess lordship, but we live our life the way we want to live our life, then our profession is empty. Jesus is calling for a profession that shows itself through submitted obedience. That passage in Matthew goes on to say that many on the last day will call Jesus Lord. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. And the telltale sign will be they never showed that they submitted to him in obedience. This is important because I know that I'm speaking to a room of people who profess Jesus as Lord. But the real question is, does your lordship show itself in submitted obedience? Being a good person because you agree with being a good person may not mean that you really are confessing and professing Jesus as Lord. It's when your life wants something that the Word of God counsels you against and you choose the Word of God. And that is what it means to profess His Lordship. And is that happening with you? That is a a sign of being spiritually alive. His Word is authoritative. So we profess his lordship, but next thing we see in in this story is that we confess our sinfulness. Peter obeys Jesus. He lets down his nets, 
And almost immediately, listen to what happens. I mean, this is some of the most exciting verses. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of data here. All of a sudden, they have got a, a catch of fish that is so large that their nets that have been designed for this purpose are about to rip apart. And their boats, which are designed to take in normal-sized catches, they need two boats. And both of those boats are at the point of submerging, of sinking. So we have fishermen who are having such a great catch that their nets are about to tear, they're seeking to get the, the help of other people because they're about to lose everything, they're about to sink. There's a lot to be focused on in this scene. There's a lot to, to draw your attention to. This is the greatest catch of Peter's life, and if these ships sink, it might be the last catch of Peter's life, right? I mean, what joy and excitement and drama. And yet, how does Peter react? This, the, 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 the flopping of the, 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 the splashing of the fish and the tearing of the nets and, and the sinking of the boats is not what gets Peter's reaction. His reaction goes elsewhere. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All of this activity, and he is focused on, Oh my goodness, who am I in the boat with? Suddenly, he is under conviction and fear. Why? Because this fish, this catch, is not luck. It's not skill. The fish are jumping into the net because Jesus has commanded them. There's nothing about this catch that should have happened. There's nothing about this catch that is normal. These fish are responding to Jesus. Get in the net. And so the question is big. Who is he? Jesus is revealing himself in this moment, in this boat, as the Lord of creation. The winds and the seas obey him. Here we see that the fish are under his dominion. And when the Lord of creation says to the fish, Get in the net. Every fish in the Sea of Galilee makes as fast of a trip that they can to get in the net. Peter is, is here recognizing that this is not something that has any natural explanation. This is the evidence that I am in the presence of the Lord of all creation. And so Peter comes to this point of terror in the midst of all of this excitement, because what is happening to him is what's called a theophany. Theophany is the word God and, and uh, uh, well, the word manifest. 
So basically, God is being manifested in the boat to Jesus, or to, to Peter. And it is because all of a sudden this uh, moment of theophany is happening that Peter is full of fear. The way Peter responds sounds incredibly similar to another person in the scriptures who has a theophany. And then we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to read these dramatic words because the same thing is happening to Peter. Isaiah shares of his call in Isaiah 6 verse 1. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the Lord, and he cries out, Woe is me, I am sinful. Peter in the boat in front of Jesus sees this, this uh, revelation of his true nature, and he says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. What Peter is experiencing in Jesus is the same thing that Isaiah is experiencing in the temple. Jesus is revealing himself as the Holy One. An essential mark of a theophany, of an encounter with God, is conviction of sin. You see, when God reveals himself, he reveals himself holy. And holiness, when it is revealed, makes unholiness evident. It is like putting a straight stick next to a crooked stick. The crookedness shows up immediately. Uh, for the last six or seven or eight months, I've been on a, a low-carb diet. Uh, and uh, I have researched every kind of artificial sweetener that exists. And when you're deep into uh, uh, the no-carb thing, some of those sweeteners, after a while, taste okay. And then you sneak a real piece of chocolate. And you are like, that? That's for a lot better. <laughs> that is nothing like Splenda, 
right? Well, when, when we encounter true holiness, our sense of being good, our sense of being okay and righteous becomes so evidently artificial that we cry out, I am a sinful man. You see, Peter is not here confessing a sin. Peter is not a bad guy. Peter is an upstanding person. He takes care of his family. He loves his, uh, his wife, and I don't know if there are children, but I, you know, if he does, I know he, he loves them. He's, a, he's a, a, a good, astute Jewish person. Uh, he does what he's supposed to do regarding the temple. He's, he, knows, he knows the scriptures. He's a good person. You'd lend him $5. He'd give it back. He is not saying a particular sin I have committed. He is recognizing at this moment of revelation, I am a sinful man. His nature is corrupt. He is a a crooked stick. And it's not a matter of, of changing a behavior on the outside or, or reforming a little bit of who he was. It is his a, a recognition that he is a sinful man. He is fake sugar in the presence of the real thing. And so there is nobody who encounters the Lord that comes away feeling like they are righteous. Like their works are truly good. To encounter God, to, to, to have a moment where he reveals himself to you in the word, is to come under conviction. It is, it is natural to come into the presence of holiness, and the word is holy, to be filled with a recognition of your sinfulness. I, I, I don't think this is just something that happens to Peter. I think it happens to every single true disciple. It doesn't come in the fishing boat, but it does come under the preaching of the word, under, under the reading of the word. My conversion story was simply I was going to read the Bible. And I, I started with the Gospels and I read a chapter a day. And here is what happened after about 30 days of spending time with this person named Jesus, I saw that he was a straight stick, that he was the Lord. And I could not excuse and squirm myself away that I was crooked. There's only one thing that we can do when we confront the fact that we are crooked and God calls us to be straight as he is straight. And that is to confess, I am crooked. I am a sinful man. You can't know the Lord and not have gone through deep, heartfelt confession. Because to have any encounter with him is to recognize your sinfulness. Beloved, conversion comes with conviction of sin. Why do I stress this? Because there is something that bothers me about the majority of Christian testimonies I hear. They don't have any conviction of sin in them. 
Now, maybe I'm wrong. But if there hasn't been a moment of deep, piercing awareness, I am a sinful man in your spiritual journey, maybe the vital sign of life, of new birth, is is premature to declare. Conviction is also something that, that fuels our growth. Right? It's, it's when you recognize the bent of you next to the straightness of God's holiness that you want to repent. I want to align myself with the true straight of God. And so spiritual growth is also fueled. Spiritual life that thrives is also fueled by encountering again and again the holiness of God. Because as the holiness of God becomes more apparent to you, the more desire you have to repent. So whether you are in the kingdom or outside the kingdom, the question is for your spiritual life, does the gospel cause you to grieve your sin? Is your life marked by repentance? Third, we receive his assurance. We receive his assurance. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel, and this is the thing I want you to know as you you try to hide your sinfulness from God, is Peter's confession isn't met with judgment. It's met with grace, and this is for our understanding. Look at verse 10. What does Jesus say as Peter is down saying, depart from me, I am a sinful man. In verse 10, Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's in the imperative. Do not fear. To put that in the positive, be at peace. Jesus says to this man who is sinful in his holy presence, fear not. How can Jesus say fear not to a sinner in the presence of holiness? How can there be peace between crooked sticks, between unholiness and holiness? This is the major dilemma, the crisis of all of the scriptures. How can what is unholy be in the presence of holiness when holiness destroys all that's unholy? We see the answer to Isaiah's story in in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6, where we are told, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah is able to stand before God, not because God says, don't worry about your sin, but because God sent atonement to take the sin of Isaiah away. Isaiah required atonement to hear the words, don't be afraid. Where's Peter's? Where's Peter's atonement? Jesus gives Peter peace. 
And the only way he is able to do that, the only way to make this a not an empty phrase is because in saying that, he is also saying, I am your atonement. Fear not. Is Jesus saying to Peter, I have come to take away your sins. Peter recognizes this in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 18. Here is how he describes what Christ does. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It is because Christ commits to suffer for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that those who are in him are able to be brought near to God who is holy. This is the atonement that is promised to Peter when Jesus says, fear not. I should say it more dramatically. These words, fear not, are Jesus' commitment that I am going to the cross for you because otherwise the words are empty. The words fear not are the assurance to Peter. He doesn't know it entirely now, but he will know it, that Jesus has determined to die and wash away his sins. Beloved, the words fear not are spoken to every one of those who come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Everyone who confesses their sinfulness to Jesus as Savior and professes Him as Lord receives the words, fear not. This is the good news. In the gospel, confession does not lead to your judgment. It leads to the words of Christ assuring you, do not be afraid. Have peace. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus shows Peter, you are welcome before God, not by works, but because I, Jesus, am here to take away your sins. And that is true for us. The words that we have in the gospel are written so clearly in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the assurance that we have as disciples. And I want to tell you, beloved, assurance is something that that Christ wants you to have. It is part of thriving in your spiritual life is to know that the one who has saved you will not leave you or forsake you. That there is no sin that you have committed, there is no guilt that you have accrued that does not have the power of Christ's atonement to wash you clean. He loves you and he wants you to know the perfection and completeness of his forgiveness. He wants you to have the assurance of salvation. But to receive the assurance of salvation, we must come to it. We must seek it. It comes after confession. One of the reasons that we here at River Community Church always have a time of confession 
is so that we are able to live and breathe in the good news of the assurance of salvation. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all iniquity. So if you want to grow in assurance, do not neglect the coming together as God's people. You will thrive and experience the being set free of your sins by growing in the knowledge of God's forgiveness to all who confess. Number four, we join his mission. Jesus' assurance immediately comes into an, a, a mission for Jesus, for Peter. He says, from now on, you will be catching men alive. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, you uh, do not need to be afraid. My holiness is not here to judge you. I will be your atonement. And you will now be living your life for me. You will no longer be a catcher of fish that die. You will become a catcher of men who are set free and made alive by the gospel. This is who you will be, a fisher of men. Now, this call of catching people is, is a call of the disciple to be a disciple maker. Certainly, there's some uniqueness to what Peter is called to do as one of the first. But Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, these words that make sure we all recognize that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a disciple maker for Jesus. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we have been born again, that we are spiritually alive, that we are a disciple of Jesus, that we have been caught by Jesus? It's that we live to share him. And, and truthfully, how could we not we know him as Lord of all. We know him as holy, and we know him as Savior. We know him as the only solution to sinful men. How could we not be absolutely convinced and galvanized in making him known? He is the only hope, and he is my hope that I want you to have. So we, we join him on his mission. We leave everything behind for the sake of knowing him. Jesus leaves behind his, 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 his life as a fisherman, his security. He leaves behind his best catch. Not because that's the case for every single one of us, but because for Peter and for all of us must come a time where we reveal that all things in our life are under his lordship. That's the reason the image is a picture of the boats with the nets. There is a moment where we drop our nets, we drop our life according to ourself to live our life under Christ's lordship. Beloved, Peter, uh, Jesus says that the, the gospel is a, is a gospel that catches men alive. That means that, that the gospel is the place of life. It is the place where we are made alive. 
Catching men alive is not just given to Peter. It is given to all of us. This is the truth. The gospel is life. It is where we are made alive spiritually. It's where our spiritual apgar is, is found. Are we alive in the gospel? Jesus has come to give us life. Are you alive? Are you thriving? Are you professing his lordship by obedience? Are you confessing your sinfulness? Are you receiving his assurance? Are you joining him in mission? These are the things that will show you and others abundantly that you are alive in him. Let me finish with these words from Jesus in the gospel of John. This is why Jesus came. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Beloved, the gospel offers us life. Is the life of the gospel in you. Amen? Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.